All right, uh, Philippians chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. But I want to begin with an announcement, actually. I, I have an announcement to make, and I want you to uh, celebrate with me. It is this, all of the cats are out of the house, right? Can we just celebrate, right? Isn't that awesome? They're, all the cats are, are out of the house, which is an amazing accomplishment. And I just felt like you would uh, be able to celebrate and, and, uh, you know, and, and embrace my joy in this moment. Now, the bad news is every time I open the door, right, man, you know, they, they run in. However, all I have to do is I just go get that bag of food and I go shake, 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 right? And I open the door and I put a meager amount of food outside and they go, ah, and then I slam the door. And I'm just, you know, and I just imagine in their tiny little cat brains, right? They're just eating, eating, eating like crazy. And then all of a sudden they go, oh man, he tricked us again, right? Why? Because they're slaves of their cravings, right? They're slaves of their appetites. And I go, Man, for so many reasons, thank God I'm not a cat. All right, thank God we're not slaves of our cravings, right? Or, or, or are we sometimes? Now, I, I'm going to tread very, very carefully here. But I have heard and maybe seen firsthand that sometimes some women, when they're pregnant, have cravings that seem to control behavior. And uh, I want to just share with you a few of the, the cravings that, that I have uh, uncovered in uh, my experience. Um, not that all of these directly apply, but here's, here's a few. Uh, sardines on Ritz crackers with blueberries. This is, this is even worse. Dish soap on a cheeseburger. Palm olives specifically. Pulled pork on vanilla ice cream. Maybe somebody said maybe. <laughs> Canned cheese, you know that spray cheese, right? On powdered donuts. Twinkies dipped in ranch dressing. <laughs> Nutella on a burrito. Now, let me say, if, if any of these sound good to you right now in this moment... <laughs> uh, when Tristy was pregnant with, uh, with Ben... Her craving was bacon. There you go, okay. Bacon, but I don't mean like not just Hormel, you know, thinly sliced, whatever. She wanted deli bacon, right, which is super thick sliced, mostly fat. And I would purchase deli bacon in two-pound increments about every two days. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not exaggerating, right? And I just, it was like constant. I'd just be, are we out of bacon? <laughs> Where's the bacon? And so I would go and I'd purchase more bacon over and over and over again. Man, she was just like, in a sense, a slave of that craving. Now, I realize my illustration is going to break down just a little bit in this moment because bacon's awesome, right? And bacon makes everything better and amazing. But my point is this. We were made for more than to be slaves of our cravings. We're told we're made for heaven. Not, not floating on a cloud with little harps, but we were made for perfection, we being perfect, our environment being perfect, in perfect relationship with God and with others, we were made for heaven. We were made for perfection. We were not made to be slaves of our cravings. We weren't made for this, this place as it currently stands. I want to read to you a description. This is from John chapter 17. Uh, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. And I want you to listen to his uh, description in a sense 
as he prays to the Father, of our current experience. He says, but now I come to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world so that they, that is my followers, may have joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. You see what Jesus is saying? You will always feel out of place here. You should always feel out of place here. You are in the world. In fact, you've been sent in the world, into the world for a purpose, but you're not of the world. This will always feel unnatural, out of place, at some level. It absolutely should, because we're in the world, but not of the world. The problem is sometimes we live in the world and as if we are also of the world. We live for the world. We get really, really, really comfortable here. And our challenge every single day, sometimes moment by moment throughout the day, is how do we live in the world? but not actually be of the world? How do we live differently, distinctly, or as Paul's going to describe it in Philippians chapter 3, we're actually citizens of heaven, sent here to earth. So I'm going to give you two thoughts from Philippians chapter 3, is how we live, live well as citizens of heaven, on this earth, in the world, but not of the world. Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to begin in verse 17. Paul writes, Brethren, join in following my example. And observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you, and I tell you now even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. First, citizens of heaven understand the times. They they understand the world in which they live. There's a verse in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, it's describing the sons of Issachar, and it says this, they are men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. Right, they got it. We're in the world, but we need to, in a sense, step out of it and objectively think about it and look, about, look at it and understand that we don't fit here. So what's actually going on around us? Because there are spiritual realities that are transpiring that we may not see just with our eyes. But with the eyes of the Spirit, we discern them, we understand them, and we know the times. This is what's happening. This is what's going on in the world. The great illustration of a lady, her name is Martha Cohn. She's a, a Jewish woman, French citizen, World War II. And uh, she ended up signing up for the uh, intelligence service with the French army. They discovered that she could speak and read and write German, and she had blonde hair and blue eyes, so they sent her into Germany. And her cover story was that uh, she was engaged to a German soldier and she was looking for him. She had been separated from her fiancé, and so she was trying to find him. Well, an SS officer found her, she told the story, and he brought her to the front lines right, and allowed her just to, to look all around. And then she reported back. Right? She was in Germany but not of Germany, and she understood the evils of uh, Nazism in Germany, and she was working subversively to undermine it in the world, but not of the world. Now, as I say that, I am not saying that anyone and everyone who doesn't follow Christ is our enemy. They're not. See, our enemy is, is much greater than simply individuals around us who don't follow Jesus. First John chapter 5, 
John wrote, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The age in which we live right now is under the domination of Satan, whose name translates as adversary. And what John is saying is this. Uh, there's this thing that John, uh, he uses the Greek word cosmos. And it's, it's, it's the world order. He uses it not just of, of all the physical creation, but of this world order that right now Satan has influenced to be anti-God. And that may show up as active rebellion against God or just passive indifference to God. But he's the adversary. And what he does is he's created this system in which people can feel comfortable in the world. He's created a system in which people are deceived into thinking that this is all that there is to life. And so we should get all that we can out of this life. It's the world order. And there are people all around us, men and women, who are being deceived by the adversary. Now, Paul offers five descriptions here of them. So if we're going to understand the times, let's look at these descriptions. First, he says they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Now you say, okay, well, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. He's, he's got to be talking just about uh, people who don't believe in Jesus, right? Uh, hold on just a second. You remember in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says to his followers, well, who do you say that I am? Peter steps up, you know, loves to be the spokesman. He says, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the anointed one. You're the one that God has destined to, to uh, redeem Israel, rescue her from her oppressors, and, and set all things right in the world. You are Messiah. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, well done, Peter, you nailed it, right? But you didn't figure that out on your own. God's Spirit revealed that truth to you. He says, now let me help you understand what it means for me to be Messiah. I'm going to actually be rejected by the Jewish authorities, and Rome is going to crucify me. And Peter says, no, no, uh, that will not happen. I will not allow that to happen. And you remember Jesus' response? Get behind me, adversary. Get behind me, Satan. What was Peter's problem? Well, you're setting yourself, you're setting your mind on your own personal interests, not on God's interests. And now, consequently, you're an enemy of the cross of Christ. You're an enemy of the cross of Christ. Interestingly, in Paul's vocabulary, this word for weeping, he always reserves for uh, believers. I tell you now, even weeping. So, is it believers or non-believers? Honestly, I, I, I don't know for certain, but I can tell you this, uh, and, you, and you may have observed it as well, one of the, the greatest uh, tragedies that keeps people away from Christianity is Christians who live just like the world, who live very comfortably in the world, as if the world is, in fact, their home. And those who aren't following Christ say, why should I follow Christ? There's nothing different in your life. There's nothing different in what you value. There's nothing different in your, your attitudes or your, your, your loves, your affections, your choices that you make. So believer or non-believer, we don't know, but they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Second description he uses is that their end is destruction. We go, okay, well, now we know he's talking about non-believers, right? Well, once again, maybe, maybe not. Because the word for destruction in Greek could be eternal destruction, or it could be just wrecking your life. That word is used in in both respects. Let me illustrate. Um, Throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, life is pictured as walking, right? You just walk. You just take one step, then another step. Sequentially, you're just moving through time. It's your walk. In Hebrew and in Greek, same concept. This is life. You're walking. 
every life is a path. And at the end of every path, there's a cul-de-sac. Right? It, it ends. That's the end, the culmination. Is the end of the cul-de-sac eternal separation, if you've never believed in Jesus? Is the end of the cul-de-sac, you as a believer have wasted your life, and as it says in the book of Proverbs, life might be cut short because you've made poor choices. You're living destructively all along the way. The end is destruction of the life that goes against God's way. So again, in Proverbs, it says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that life is death. So, Wisdom speaks in the book of Proverbs, and she's this lovely, gracious, kind, intelligent woman. And she says, you know, when God decided that he would lay the foundations of the earth, I was there. I was at his right hand. In other words, I was woven through the fabric of the entire universe. This is how life works. This is the pathway that leads to life. This is the pathway that ends in death. And it really doesn't work any other way. This is how life works. And when you resist the way of God, living for God and for his will, life won't work well. When I was growing up in our house in New York, we had a basement. Basements are awesome. I was so bummed when I moved to Texas we didn't have a basement. So you can kind of do whatever you want and nobody's watching. So you know, my friends and I, we'd go downstairs, we'd have a ping pong table, we'd play ping pong. But then we'd set the table up and we'd play tackle football. Right in, in the basement, and we'd be throwing a football, or we had a little Nerf thing, and we'd play tackle Nerf football in the basement. It was awesome. Uh, and our stereo was also down there. And so we'd put on a record, which I, for a while this illustration didn't work, and now this illustration works again, right? Because vinyl's coming back, which is awesome. So we'd put on a vinyl, we'd put on a record, and we'd spin it, and then we'd start playing, you know, tackle Nerf football. And, you know, once in a while we would hit the cabinet, or, you know, a ball would bounce over, somebody would get thrown into it, whatever. And in that moment, it would go, you know, just because the stylus got out of the groove that it was supposed to be in. And the good news is it was usually my sister's album, not mine. Later she would pick it up, she'd like, what in the world? You've gone against the grain. And it makes this horrible sound and it leaves a mark. Because that's not how life is designed to work. And in the world order, people are being deceived to believe that they can make life work and find fulfillment and satisfaction outside of the groove of God. Their end is destruction. Paul writes in Romans 6, Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome, same word, the end of those things is death. Third, Their God is their appetite. Uh, Literally, it says their their God is their their belly. But he's not just talking about gluttony. He's talking about any passion that controls and consumes. Their God is their appetite. Romans chapter 16, Paul wrote, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances. So people inside of the church even, contrary to the teaching which you have learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of the Lord Christ, but of their own belly, of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. So, he says, be aware, understand the times. That there are those who are sometimes even inside the church who are deceiving you to follow your passions and think that you can find life outside of God. Fourth, 
Their glory is in their shame. And here's the irony. Literally, they're boasting in what is bringing them shame. And they don't even understand that it's bringing them shame because the God of this world has blinded their eyes to understand truth. Their glory is in their shame. And then this is kind of the culmination. This is the reason why all this has transpired. They have set their minds on earthly things, right? This is the, this is the summation. They're, they're fixated on the present. And they believe, believe that life is found in this cosmos, in this world order. Remember our friend uh, Demas. Paul wrote, for Demas having loved this present world. Having loved this present world. All of those passions and affections that you feed the most, those will become dominant in your life. Uh, as I told you about a book I read this last year, You Are What You Love. Right? The author was deriving an idea from Augustine. He said, look, your, your passions ultimately define you. You are what you love. You become what you love. If you set your mind on these things that are destructive, they will destroy you, but they'll dominate your life. Paul says, understand the times. Understand this world in which you presently live. You're here in the world, but you're not of the world. You should feel out of step. Your pathway should look different. So uh, how do you live effectively in the world but not of the world? Let me give you a a few ideas. First is this. I would say just, uh, in a sense, be aware. Be aware. Satan would love for you not to be thinking objectively about the world in which you live right now. But notice, again, verse 18, Paul says, For many walk, of whom I often told you, and I'm going to tell you again. (laughs) I've told you this before, and I'm going to tell you again, and I'll probably tell you again after that. Because this bears repeating, because we kind of get lulled into this level of comfort in the world. So, be aware. Be aware that you live in a broken world. The culture hates Jesus. You know, what did Jesus say in um, John 17? He said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. The cosmos is set Against, again, active rebellion or passive indifference. And the world is constantly trying to infiltrate the church. Church, we need to be aware. Second, be brokenhearted. Paul says, I tell you now, uh, even weeping. Be brokenhearted. And you know, I've noticed in in myself, I'm just going to assume that sometimes this is true in you as well, that when we are attacked or we're persecuted or we're ignored we get angry, right? The flesh gets angry, and we want to fight. Yeah, so we'll realize that these people around you, they're deceived by the adversary. Let your compassion grow. Now, is there a place for righteous anger against injustice and sin in the world? Absolutely. And I realize this is emotionally complicated, but we, we hate the unrighteousness But also let's have compassion for those who are broken. Imagine the worst sinner or the worst sinner even against you. Imagine that that person were arrested and put in prison for life for all of their evils. Wouldn't it be an amazing and beautiful and wonderful thing if they discovered Jesus Christ? Imagine the freedom that they would experience and the testimony that they would have, even if they never came out again into free society. Well, most of us haven't been wronged by that kind of person, but we've been wronged to a lesser degree. Imagine if that person who's hurt us and damaged us found freedom in Christ, and there was reconciliation and forgiveness, right? So we can still be angry at the injustice and have compassion for those who are being deceived and broken, right? So be brokenhearted. Third, be different. Be different. Our lives should look different. We should be walking a different pathway. Again, 
Verse 17, Paul says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe, the, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Remember, this has been the theme that we've been tracing all the way from the beginning of chapter 2. Here's the example of Jesus. Here's the example of Timothy. Here's the example of Epaphroditus. Here's the example of Paul himself. And Paul says, now, observe the pattern of those who walk as we walk and imitate their lives. The greatest testimony, in a sense, against Christianity at times is believers who don't live any differently, but the most powerful testimony for Christ is our transformed lives. Recognizing we will never fit in perfectly. Don't be surprised. So first, citizens of heaven understand the times. Second, citizens of heaven hope for shalom. Let's read again. Let's read all the way through this section. Verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and I tell you now, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Shalom is, is one of the richest biblical words. It, it doesn't just mean the, the absence of conflict. It means the presence of all of God's best. Shalom, fullness, blessing. Paul says, wait Eagerly, be on your toes. Lean in. This week, Matt told me a great story uh, about his, uh, his wife's grandmother, uh, Shannon, Shannon Morton's grandmother. In uh, World War II, her husband had gone away to basic training. He had ba- been gone for months. She hadn't seen him for a long time. But she received word that he would be coming into New York City and they'd be staying at a particular hell, hotel. Ooh, particular hotel. <laughs> So she went to the hotel, and she sat and waited for him. She hadn't seen him in months, so she wasn't sure, will I recognize him? He'll have lost weight. He'll be in a uniform like all the other soldiers coming in. I don't want to miss him. And there were thousands of soldiers being processed through this hotel. And so she sat in the lobby of the hotel. And she sat, and she, sat, and she didn't leave. She was afraid to get up and even go to the bathroom, because if he came through and she missed him, she might never find him. And she wasn't sure if she would know what he looked like, but he would certainly know what she looked like, so she had to be sitting there for eight hours. She didn't move for eight hours because she was, in Paul's language, eagerly watching, right? Eagerly waiting. Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. We're waiting for something we don't have yet. It's called shalom. We're always going to feel out of place because we don't have fullness yet. We don't. Not in this lifetime. But we wait for it. We eagerly anticipate. What does it look like? I want to give you a few characteristics. First, it's harmony within ourselves. Read again verse 21. We're eagerly waiting for our Savior who will rescue us, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory even by the exertion of the power that he has to subject all things to himself. 
Right? We, we currently are in physical bodies that they, they betray us. Eventually they betray us, right? You guys know, I got this little thing right here. It's got to be taken out. It's cancer. You know what? Uh, it's really not bothering that, me that much right now. I feel great. You know what bothers me is my knee. My knee hurts right now. I don't know why my knee hurts. It just hurts. So, you know, I went to my doctor and he gave me some pills and I uh, waited a couple weeks. He said, Do you feel better? I go, no, I, it still hurts. So then he stuck a needle in my knee and I've waited a few more days. And you know what? It still hurts. My knee hurts. I don't know why it hurts. Uh, the word Paul uses here literally is like it's uh, like rotting fruit. <laughs> it's your body. Your body is letting you down. And you, Man, I know, we got a young crowd here and you're not feeling it, but you will. You will feel it. <laughs> our bodies betray us. And the problem isn't just our bodies, but the interaction between the outer man, the body, and the inner man, the spirit. There's, there's tension there. It's frustrating. And then even inside the inner man himself and herself. There's tension, right? As Paul says in Romans chapter 7, I want to do the good, but I don't. And I'm just in this constant turmoil. Wretched man that I am, in, a, in, in our most raw and honest moments, we, we echo this prayer. We say, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death, this enslavement. I want to do this one thing, but I do something completely different, and I'm torn up inside. Well, what shalom means is all of that conflict is removed. You just want one thing. You want what God wants. It's not just that you're trying to talk yourself into wanting what God wants. You, you want for what God wants, and you don't want anything else. And you're in this body that's transformed into the image of the body, physically resurrected body of Jesus Christ that's not decaying and not growing old. In fact, it's strong and it's healthy and it's vibrant. So inner man and outer man are one and outer man is whole and secure. So we are in harmony with, with ourselves. Our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, our will are all aligned with the will of God. Second, we have harmony with our creator. Ezekiel chapter 36 uh, tells us that uh, in that day, and the the prophets write a lot about that day of of shalom, kingdom, fulfillment. In that day, that heart of stone will be removed and a heart of flesh will take its place. That is, our desires will long for God. We will be right with God and he will write his law on our hearts. He will plant his spirit within us so we'll have not only the desire but also the the ability to do all that is right. right. That's harmony with the creator. We're once again reconciled. That's what the gospel promises us right now, right? We can be back in right relationship with God, not because we're chasing after God and we're fixing our lives, but because God offers us this beautiful free gift where he removes the barrier of sin and he gives us right relationship. And our responsibility is to say yes. Because that's what grace means. It means that God initiates, right? He chases after us. He offers us this gift and we say yes, thank you. Let me be in harmony with you. And, you know, if you're here this morning and you've never made that decision just to say to God, yes, let me encourage you, say yes to him this morning. Let him, let him put you back in right relationship with him, with the hope that you will also be in right relationship in the future with your body, a resurrected body that doesn't decay any longer, and a spirit that's not fighting in different places amongst, within itself. I want you to turn, to keep your place here in Philippians, turn to Romans chapter 8. Listen to Paul's description in Romans 8. Verse 23. He says, not only this, but we also ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. That is, uh, the moment that you believe in Jesus Christ, 
the, the debt of sin is removed, you have life that lasts forever, and God's spirit dwells inside of you. Uh, and he, we're told he's given like a down payment, right? That first installment. And with that first installment, it really, the, the spirit really begins to cause us to, to not feel in step with the world, right? But to long for something else. That's, that's natural in the Christian life. And so Paul says, look, we've got this first fruit of the spirit, we groan within ourselves because we're waiting eagerly. Same word there. We're reaching out. We're anticipating. We're expecting our adoption as sons, which is the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he, for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, once again, we eagerly wait for it. Right? We don't have it yet. But now because we're reconciled with God, we have harmony with the Creator there's something inside of us that longs for all things to be set right. And so we, we're anxious for it. And we groan for it. And that's good. Right? Your dissatisfaction with life as it now is, is a good thing. Because the Spirit of God is reminding you that there's something much better waiting for you. Right? Harmony within yourself. Harmony with the Creator. Third, harmony with His creation. Look at Romans chapter 8. In verse 19, Paul says, For the anxious longing, same word again, the anxious longing even of creation itself waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So when Adam and Eve said, no, we're, we're going we're gonna to get out of the groove, and the, the record skipped, they said, we're going to go our way. Not only did they experience separation, that is death, in their relationship with God, and alienation in their relationship with one another, but also alienation, separation, death in their relationship with the created order. So their labor was designed to be fruitful and satisfying every single day. And instead, God said, now you're going to reach into the ground and it's going to poke you. It's going to be thorns and thistles. Because of your brokenness, even creation will experience brokenness. And you're going to have fires in California. And you're going to have hurricanes hitting South Carolina. And you're going to have coworkers that frustrate you like crazy. Because creation is out of order. But when shalom comes... Creation is renewed. Creation is put in harmony with God and with us. And so, once again, all labor that we were designed for will be satisfying and fulfilling all the time. Fourth, we will be in harmony with one another. I love harmony in music. You know, when Ashley and Tim both step up the mic and they're right there in the pocket. It's a beautiful thing. And if you're not a big music person, what's happening is they're not singing the same note, but they're singing notes that fit, right? They just fit really nicely. And then sometimes Kayla will have a third mic and Kayla's singing as well. And then we've got three parts. They're singing different notes, but all those notes fit together. When Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God, the first thing that happened is they felt guilt and shame and were separated from one another. They covered themselves up. And, in, and we feel that in our relationships, don't we? We're covering up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you just enough of an edited version so that you respond positively to me. But you don't know me. But really, what I really want is I want you to know me and still love me. 
even if you see the, the dark stuff, right? And not just the light, which is Jesus. I want you to know me. I want you to accept me, but I'm afraid of that, right? So there's fear. And when we're afraid, we express it in anger and our relationships break down. And then the Spirit of God comes in and he shows us that, in fact, we are free. And we begin to learn to have healthy relationships, harmony where things fit together. And we hope for that imperfection. We just can't get there all the time, right? We just, even our best friendships, the best marriages, they just, they don't get there. They just don't always, there's still friction. But we see, well, I got a taste of it. I got the down payment of it. And I want more of that. That's shalom, right? Harmony within myself. Harmony with God which has created all these things. Harmony with creation itself, harmony with one another. That is, we're all made perfect and we're placed back into an environment that is perfect with other people that are perfect forever. And that's what we long for. That's what we hope for. And when we begin pursuing all of our passions here in life, it dulls our longing for that. Right? We're, we're accepting cheap substitutes for that thing. We should always feel a bit uncomfortable in this place. Right now, we don't fit because the best that this life has to offer is broken. And so uh, that's just the, that's just a fact. It's just true, right? You, you can't fix everything that's broken in this world. And you know, I know that uh, that's not cheery, right? It's, it's kind of seems a little cynical, fatalistic. So, so what do we do? How do we respond? Uh, let me give you a couple of application thoughts. Um, I, I want to read you a quote first. This is from C.S. Lewis's his most famous work, uh, *Mere Christianity*, and he made this statement. He said, "If you read history," you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next world. All left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. Aim at heaven and you get the earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. See what he's saying? Those who do the most good here on earth are actually the ones who long the most for heaven. And they're the most realistic. They're the most realistic. So, what should we do? Three applications. First, model a life of hope, not fear. Model a life of hope, not fear. Uh, perhaps you noticed we, we had uh, midterm elections last week. Anybody notice that going on? All right. And uh, there were a lot of people really, really, really spun up. On both sides of the political spectrum. Uh, Really excited and hopeful. Really angry and frustrated. Really just really, really spun up. Because there's some significant issues that are being decided through those elections. But but here's the deal. If all of your favorite candidates got elected. It wouldn't change the nature of this world. Maybe a little bit for a short period of time. And I'm not being cynical, I'm just being realistic. Because our hope is not in politics, it's not in a political party. Our hope is in the return of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And he's the one who's actually going to put a nation with nation and create harmony even among nations, not just individuals. So, you know, we, we try to vote well and we try to vote wisely according to biblical principles, but our hope is not now, right? Our hope is not in this world. And you will interact with people who are now they're either elated and ecstatic or devastated on the, on the other hand, right? And, and both of those emotions are way out of proportion with the reality of Christians who live for the world to come. Right? And that's, that's different. And when people see that we're settled, 
We voted, we won, we voted, we lost, (laughs) and here we are. We're still marching forward, hoping in the kingdom of God and the return of Jesus Christ, right? And so we we have a settled hope in the world, and that's really different. It stands apart. Randy Alcorn, in his book on heaven, wrote this. He said, our minds are set so resolutely on earth that we are unaccustomed to heavenly thinking, so we must work at it. What have you been doing daily to set your mind on the things above? As Paul says in Colossians uh, chapter 3, set your mind on the things above, not on the things on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ is revealed, who is our life, then you also will be be revealed with him in glory, right? So Paul is saying this, you live in the world, but you're not of the world. That's your life. And you are in God's mind, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You possess that life. So think about it, meditate on it, dwell on it. Right? Maybe go back and review these notes. What is coming in heaven? Oh, man, I want that. I long for that. Right? So I'm going to be a little less rattled by what happens on earth. Because that's where I've set my mind. And now, as a result, I'm modeling this life of hope in Jesus. Second, find joy in doing good. Go do good. You can never do enough good. You can never, you're never going to solve uh, poverty, um, racism, um, Hunger, you, you, but you can do something, right? So go do good, right? And be a blessing because the pressure's off, right? The pressure's off. Ultimately, God's going to have to fix all of these things. We're trusting in him. But in this moment, we can do good and we can be a blessing in the name of Jesus, right? So find joy in doing good. But I would say this, always point the way to heavenly citizenship because if we do good and we don't get to the gospel, we've left people short, Right? We are sent, Paul, or Jesus says, he says, look, you're not of the world, but you've been sent into the world. It's a word for apostle. You're a sent one. God intentionally has caused you to remain on this earth. A few days, a few years, many years, I don't know, but right now, you are sent. Your life is to be intentional. Right? You live in hope, and you do good to point people toward heavenly citizenship. Do you, do you uh, solve all of the problems in their lives? No, you cannot. You cannot. But you can do something that shines a little bit of light for Jesus Christ and reminds these people, look, I can't solve all of your problems. I can help with this little one. But let me point you to a greater hope, which is Jesus. Church, that's why we're here, right? To get to the gospel. To get to the gospel. Because that's not just what we were designed for, but that's what all of God's creatures made in his image were designed for. So, let's be aware. Let's see the world as it is against God, as it truly is. But let's also see those around us, deceived by the adversary, and in need of us pointing them to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would see the world truthfully, and I pray that our hearts would break for those who don't. I pray, Father, that you would give us opportunities to do good, to bless, to serve, that we would live generously and sacrificially, that we would give of our time and our treasures and our talents so that the gospel would be opened up for people. I pray for this body of believers that you would give us, even this week, opportunities to serve and to speak of Jesus. Father, set us again on mission. Let us remind, Please remind us through the power of your spirit why we are here. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.